Story 6 of Stories Weird and Wonderful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Gallagher. Stories Weird and Wonderful by J. E. Muddock. Story number 6 Some Experiments with a Head. Being a record from the papers of a late physician. The following notes have reference to a time, now far off, alas, when I was a very young man and imbued with an unquenchable desire for knowledge. I was an enthusiast, I freely admit, and there were some who called me a dreamer. But, if that is to be interpreted as meaning a visionary, I decline to admit that the term is applicable. I had a profound love of science in all its branches, and in those fields of research which the scientist must conscientiously explore if he wishes to be accepted as a trustworthy guide i diligently sought for demonstrable facts scientists may be divided into two very distinct classes your men of theory and your men of practice i preferred to fall into the latter category and asked for proof of all that was advanced it was this very trait in my character which led to the extraordinary incidents related in this paper let me at once state that at the time to which i refer I was a medical student studying at the College de France in Paris. My father before me had been an eminent member of the medical profession, and from the very earliest period of my existence I evinced a strong desire to follow in his footsteps. The consequence was that, by the time I was twenty, I was studying hard in the French capital. I had already passed several examinations with flying colors, and was looking forward to obtaining my diploma within the next two years. Now, there was one subject that had always possessed for me almost fascinating interest, and I am free to confess that it absorbed a great deal of my attention. It was whether in cases of decapitation, death was instantaneous. My professional brethren will know that opinions on the subject have been much divided, but instantaneous is an elastic term. The coming and going of a flash of lightning is said to be instantaneous, and yet it occupies an appreciable space of time that is capable of being accurately measured. Now, the question that suggested itself to my mind was whether, though, life was extinguished in a space of time no longer than a flash of lightning takes to manifest itself, that is, in the blinking of an eye, there was still time for introspection, retrospection, and speculation. I was fully aware that the point involved was a peculiarly delicate one, and might be said to belong more to the domain of psychology rather than physiology. But in considering the subject, one could not ignore the experiences of those who had come within an ace of losing their lives by drowning. In well-authenticated instances, the drowning person had in an incredibly brief space of time traversed the whole record of his life, had recalled incidents of childhood long ago forgotten, and had even worked out speculatively what his friends would think of his death, how his affairs would be settled, and what would be the careers of his children, if he had any, in the far-off future. In such brief moments the mind is capable of grasping an extraordinary range of subjects, past, present, and to come, and yet the duration of consciousness in such cases can hardly exceed, in the extremest limit, five minutes. In dwelling upon these facts, I asked myself whether the brain of a decapitated person was not capable of thought for a period as correspondingly long as that experienced by a drowning man. I was, of course, aware that some of the most eminent anatomists affirmed that the entire severance of the jugular vein, the carotid arteries, 
especially the interior carotid supplying the brain with blood, and the spinal cord, or main nerve tract of the body, must produce absolutely instantaneous death. But I had the boldness to answer to this that instantaneousness was capable of being measured as a space of time, and such a space of time to a dying man was filled with potentialities that could not be ignored by the inquirer who had a due regard for minutia. Nor could I forget the well-authenticated case of an unfortunate victim of the reign of terror, whose head was seized by the executioner as soon as the guillotine had severed it, and as the man was in the act of holding it up by the hair to the view of the crowd, he saw the eyes turn upon him with such a look of anguish and unspeakable reproach that with a cry of horror he let the head fall and fled. The professorial chair of anatomy in the college was filled by the celebrated Dr. Francois Grassard, who had been a friend of my father and took a great interest in me. He was pleased at times to discuss my favorite subject with me, but his opinion was that cessation of thought and power of reflection was absolutely coincident with the severance of the neck, which, as everyone knows in the case of the guillotine, is as quick as the blinking of the eye. But then I took my stand upon that elasticity of the term instantaneous, and which, as I have already urged, while counting for nothing in an ordinary way, might be much to a dying person, that is, a person dying by a sudden and violent means. On one occasion, after an argument with Dr. Grassard, I ventured to suggest that it might be possible to make some practical experiments with a view to substantiating or disproving my argument. The doctor reflected a little time, and then said, Yes, I think it is possible, and such experiments can hardly fail to be deeply interesting and even scientifically valuable. It was not until nearly a year after this that the opportunity for the suggested experiments occurred. It happened that about this time Paris was startled by a wholesale butchery of a peculiarly atrocious character. In one of the wretched dens of the Rue de Cascara, a man named Gaspard Thoreau hacked his wife, his mistress, and four children to pieces. The Rue de Cascara is situated in the neighborhood of Saint-Denis, which is perhaps one of the foulest spots to be found in any city in the world. It is not necessary to dwell upon the details of the crime, which, however, were peculiarly horrible even for Paris. But the criminal himself was altogether a most remarkable man. He had formerly been an analytical chemist, and was a man of high intellectual attainments. In direct opposition, however, to the wishes of his friends and relations, he married a woman much below him in social rank, and one of very indifferent character. Such a mésalliance was, of course, bound to bring misery and unhappiness. Madame Thoreau had a violent temper and a most jealous disposition. The result was the ill-matched couple led a cat and dog life for years. At first the man struggled against his misfortunes, then he gave way to drink, and that brought the inevitable concomitant train of evils. He lost his position, his business, his honor, went from bad to worse, was deserted by all his relations, committed forgery, and served a long term of imprisonment. On his release, he sank down to the lowest stratum of society, and together with his wife and four children, found shelter in the dreadful Alsatia of Saint-Denis. Here he formed a liaison with a woman who lived under the same roof. For a time, the wife tolerated her rival, then the two women began to fight like wildcats until the feud ended in the awful tragedy. Thoreau, inflamed with wine, went to his den one night, when both the women reviled and reproached him, until, excited into a fit of frenzy, he slew them and his children. His history, such as I have sketched it in outline, 
was gradually unfolded at the trial, and, although he found some sympathizers, the weight of public opinion was decidedly against him. There was never from the first a shadow of a doubt about his being the culprit. The only question was whether, to their verdict, the jury could not append the extenuating circumstances of which French juries are so fond, and which invariably saves the murderer's head. But Thoreau's crime was so revolting and barbarous that the extenuating circumstances were left out and the criminal was condemned to death without hope of reprieve. As soon as Dr. Crassard heard of the sentence, he said to me, Well, young gentlemen, I think we shall at last be able to try our experiments, and, what is more, we shall have an unusually good subject. I knew what he meant by an unusually good subject. Thoreau was a man of striking physical mold. From an anatomical point of view, he was perfect, with a well-shaped head, firmly set on massive shoulders. He was under forty, and had never had any disease, so that in such a man vitality would be very strong, and there would be a corresponding tenacity of life. Apart from sure physical attributes, he was endowed with a keen intelligence and mental powers of a high order, though he had shown himself weak in one respect, that was his inability to rise superior to his misfortunes. Dr. Grassard's position as one of the first anatomists in France gave him great influence, so that he had no difficulty in obtaining permission from the authorities to visit the condemned man. He found Thoreau callous as to his fate, and holding views with regard to a future stage which rendered him deaf to the voice of spiritual consolation. As a matter of fact, he absolutely and determinedly refused to receive the prison or any other chaplain, though a day or two before his execution he so far relented as to consent to see a priest to whom he made confession. It will be readily comprehended in what respect such a man was about as good a subject as could have been selected for our purpose. With tact and delicacy, Dr. Grassard led up to the purpose that had induced him to visit him, telling him that in the interest of science, it was desired to make certain tests with a view to endeavor to establish the precise moment when the death of the brain ensued after decapitation. With a grim smile, Thoreau said that as a chief actor in the experiment, he was perfectly willing to do all that he possibly could to further the ends of science. But he wanted to know what part he was to play after he was beheaded. He was told that what was desired of him was that at the moment when he was laid upon the plank, with his neck under the knife, he should concentrate all his thoughts upon four questions that would be spoken into his ear. These questions were, 1. Are you in pain? 2. Do you recognize those about you? 3. Do you remember what you have been guillotined for? 4. Are you happy? The affirmative answer to these questions was to be a single blink of the eyelids, the negative 2. Now, if consciousness remained for any appreciable space of time, there was no reason why this motion of the eyelids should not be made, because the palpebrae, or eyelids, are dependent for their action on certain muscles known as the orbicular, or circular muscles, and the levators palpebrae superioris, the muscles used to raise the upper eyelids, which would be quite uninjured structurally. The same remark applies to the muscles of the eye known as the recti, which are six in number, so that the eye might also be moved if the will was there. On that the whole question turned would the will be there? By will I mean consciousness. These preliminaries having been settled, it now remained to make arrangements for carrying the experiments out, and in this we were aided in every possible way by the authorities, the matter, of course, being kept strictly secret. In discussing these arrangements with Professor Grassard, 
I took the liberty to express myself to the effect that if the brain could be kept at its normal temperature by the blood, consciousness might be retained for many seconds, if not minutes, and what we had to consider was how to prevent the tremendous drain of the vital fluid as soon as the severance was accomplished. Naturally, with the cutting through the great veins and arteries, the blood flowed away as water would flow from a reservoir if the banks were to burst, and what we had to do was to dam this flow. After some consideration, Professor Grassard suggested that by plunging the bleeding surface into a basin of softened wax, the end aimed at would be attained. The month was November, and the morning of the execution was as dismal as could be imagined. All night long a drizzling rain had been falling, and a searching, biting wind made the streets unbearable. To this fact, no doubt, was due the comparatively small crowd that had assembled in a Place de Roquette, where the guillotine was erected. The hideous machine of death had been placed within three yards of the door of the prison through which its victim would have to pass on this his last journey. A corridor had been formed from the door to the steps of the guillotine by putting up a canvas screen on each side. This had been done for our special convenience. It had also been arranged that, instead of the basket which was to receive the head being placed on the scaffold in the usual way, some of the planks were cut, forming, as it were, a trap door, the basket being on the ground under the trap. Consequently, after the execution, the head could be taken out without the spectators having any knowledge of what was being done. The authorities were also good enough to place at our disposal an anti-room just inside of the corridor of the prison, so that we had no difficulty whatever in completing our preparations and being quite ready for the exciting moment. As is well known, culprits condemned to death in France are never informed of the day of their execution until the very morning, and only then about an hour before the time. It was six o'clock when the prefect, the governor of the prison, various officials, and a priest entered the row cell, and arousing him from a sound sleep, informed him that he had but an hour to live. The wretched man received the announcement with the most perfect sang froid. There, turning to the priest, who had approached him with a crucifix, he bowed and said politely but firmly, Monsieur, pardon me if I say I can dispense with your services. I have never attempted to deny I committed the crime, and now in this supreme hour, in your presence and the presence of these gentlemen, I confess that my hand, and my hand alone, killed the women and the children. I am perfectly aware that by the laws of my country my life is forfeited, and the prefect justice of my sentence I freely admit. But if such crimes as mine are to be visited with the wrath of heaven, I cannot hope to turn aside that wrath by a hurried prayer now that I am all but dead. Therefore, monsieur, I pray that you will leave me to my own reflections during the brief time left to me, for, as a matter of fact, I have pledged myself so far as I can to aid certain experiments that Professor Grassard is desirous of carrying out. This speech, at such a time, will show that the culprit was no ordinary man. The priest, however, did not retire, but remained with the prisoner and accompanied him to the scaffold, and there Thoreau consented to press his lips to the crucifix that the good priest extended to him. As soon as ever the mournful procession had passed through the doorway, one of our hospital assistants followed with a tin bowl half full of heated wax. A cordon of gendarmes was drawn around the guillotine, and beyond them again was a double line of mounted soldiers, so that the crowds of people were kept a long way off. Exactly three minutes after Thoreau had crossed the threshold of the door, he was lying on the plank. Daylight had scarcely yet begun to assert itself. From the murky sky the drizzling rain still descended, and away to the east there was an angry flush of red. The boom of the bell of Notre Dame, as it slowly told the hour of seven, fell on our ears as the gleaming and fatal knife flashed down the wooden uprights in which it worked, and Thoreau's head fell into the basket on the pavement. 
With extraordinary dexterity and coolness, the assistant caught it up and set it with the neck downward in the basin of wax, and then with agile movement he rushed into the room where we waited for him. The face of the culprit was then perfectly natural in its color and expression, but we noted that there was a slight twitching of the muscles of the mouth. The basin was set on a table already prepared, and in the full rays of a strong light. Then the professor placed his lips close to the right ear, and in a clear, deliberate, resonant voice asked, Are you in pain? Instantly there were two distinct blinks of the eyelids. Do you recognize those about you? the next asked. This time there was one blink. Do you remember what you have been guillotined for? One blink again, but now the muscular motion of the eyelid was perceptibly slower. The last question was then put, Are you happy? With the utterance of the word happy, Professor Grassard straightened himself up, and instantly the eyes, which were fully open, and also quite natural in color and expression, turned upon him. The effect of this was thrilling, and certainly would have unnerved men who had not been braced up by an enthusiastic love of science. The professor moved round the table slowly, describing the segment of a circle in his movement, and as he did so the eyes followed him. Then suddenly we saw a film come over them, and the lids drooped, while the face assumed a bluish-white tint, and there was a dropping of the lower jaw. From the time that the head was taken out of the basket to this change setting in, exactly three minutes eight seconds had elapsed, as measured by a chronometer watch, so that there was consciousness of the brain for that period after the head was severed from the body. The proofs of this were beyond all question of possible doubt. It may, of course, be stated with positiveness that this, in a great measure, if not entirely so, was due to the tormetrically sealing of the ends of the cut vessels by means of the wax. We regretted exceedingly that an answer by the sign of negation or affirmation, which had been agreed upon, had not been given to question number four. It seemed probable that the question was understood, but instead of the motion of the eyelid, the eyes themselves turned, following the movement of the professor, and on discussing this subsequently, we came to the conclusion that it was due to Dr. Grassard rising from the bent position he had assumed while speaking into the ear, and naturally he regretted that he had altered his position so quickly. The change in the face that then set in was probably due to the congesting of the sinuses, which would at once deprive the brain of all sensibility. In other words, the brain there and then died. This was the conclusion we arrived at, but nevertheless we resolved to try what effect an electric current might have though we were actuated more by curiosity than any absolute idea of results. We had provided ourselves with a small battery, and laying bare the ganglion cervicale superiores, a nerve center in the neck, we sent a current through it, but the only effect produced was some twitching of the nerves of the face. We therefore made a deep incision down on the optic nerve behind the eye, and connecting the nerve with the positive pole of the battery, while the negative pole was applied to the base of the anterior lobe of the brain, we turned on the current. In a few seconds, the face seemed to lose its bluish waxen appearance and became suffused with a warm flush as in life. The eyes lost their glassiness and the eyelids their droop. As we watched these phenomena with breathless interest, we saw with amazement the eyes move in a perfectly natural way from right to left and left to right. Then Professor Grassard drew with his finger an imaginary line on a parallel axis to the eyes of the head and the eyes slowly followed the motion of the finger. Speaking for myself, I confess to being positively startled by this unlooked-for result, for anything more weird or awful than the bodiless head rolling its eyes in counterfeit presentiment of actual life could hardly be imagined by brain of man. 
but the climax had not yet been reached. For the next moment, the professor brought his lips on a line with the right ear of the head, and in a clear, distinct voice said, If you are conscious of what is being done, make that known to us by blinking your eyelids. I had been looking at the face intently as this was said, and I was now absolutely horrified to observe that the eyelids actually did blink. I could endure no more. I seemed to be suffocating. I staggered to the door, flung it open, and reaching the passage, fell down in a swoon. When I recovered consciousness, Professor Grissard conveyed me to my residence in his carriage. I saw that he was very grave and thoughtful. I think, he said quietly, as we neared our destination, I think our experiments went a little beyond what we intended, for we seem to have brought the dead to life again. Yes, I answered with a shudder, and we have substantiated my theory that the head of a human being may live for some minutes after its severance from the body, but nothing would ever induce me to undertake such experiments again. End of Some Experiments with a Head Recording by Jim Gallagher